Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Jan de Bond, a Dutch filmmaker who directed some of the most exciting action movies of the 1990s, including Speed, starring Keanu Reeves, and one of my favorite disaster movies, Twister. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics. Jan's early beginnings in Hollywood as a cinematographer, and the horrific accident he suffered on the infamous production of Roar, when one of the 150 untrained lions sculpted him while filming one of the scenes, his experience as the DP of Die Hard in 1987, and the emotional importance of shooting in-camera stunts, an in-depth conversation on the making of his directorial debut, Speed, and how shooting the movie at a low budget forced them to go behind the studio's back to pull off his vision, and much more. If you'd like to hear new content, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. Before I get started, I want to warn you that Jan gets into graphic detail describing his lion injury while working on Roar. So once we get into it, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes if you consider yourself kind of squeamish. But I can guarantee you shouldn't worry too much because now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Again, thank you so much, Jan, for taking the time to talk to us. It's it's really, really a pleasure. Roar is a project which I hadn't heard about until a couple of years ago, and I watched it with my family. It's important for people to understand that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's your first big experience in Hollywood, and you're going from films where you shoot four to five weeks to an 11-year production where over 70 cast and crew members sustained life-threatening injuries, sets are flooded, and you got mauled by a lion, which results in 236 stitches but what i think is interesting is that it sounds as if you've always had an approach of a documentarian capturing mm. things mm-hmm. that are unfolding right. before you and no project much like roar must be a lesson in that because you have no idea what could happen how, how do you structure a production like that how often do people say i'm i'm fucking done like i'm out of this this yeah, is that too happens, dangerous that's and- happened very regularly unfortunately especially camera operators and i could totally understand that it is dangerous. And when I started work, I had no really good idea what I was in for. But very soon when I saw those animals, they said they were trained. None of them were trained animals. I mean, they were around trainers, but that's not a trained animal. They wouldn't do stunts. None of them would. You could force them to run a certain direction. And especially if you have a live chicken or so holding a front, they would run after that very quickly. And at the same time, without being far away, it was a long run. So because I felt like that is getting a, a, a nature movement. And I didn't want that either. So... We got very well experienced in camouflaging cameras inside a tree. And the cameras had to be low quite often because those animals are not that tall. And also looking down at an animal is not very dramatic. So you have to be low. And putting in those low cameras, that means you had to dig holes in the ground to have the camera just stick out and have the animals walk around you or come at you. And quite often, as the animal trained, they could stop right in front of the camera. And then they would smell you. Then your life depends basically on those animal handlers who are there close by with a fire extinguishers and carry them away. So what 
I had to do and, and the few people that work with me and not many stayed on, got replaced. And I didn't know if I was afraid of animals either. To be honest, the moment I saw those big lions, especially the tigers, I said, oh, fuck, that sucks. That's really not good. <laughs> and especially tigers. Tigers are really more, a lot more dangerous than, than lions, although the lion bit my head off almost. But the tigers, they look at you and the moment you see the eye color change, that's the moment they're going to attack you. And that happened to me one time, and I, I climbed a fence so high, I did not know I could climb a fence, like a vertical fence, straight up. And he just right at me and jumped up in the fence. And I knew it was going to happen. And just because I saw the change of color in his eyes, but if I didn't know that, I would have been probably not here, you know? There, I mean, there was something unique about it that this tippy had, and it was their compound. They had all those animals, and they had elephants, and they had God knows how many different types of animals, and jaguars, and leopards, and cougars and some zebras. It was like ridiculous, you know, and it's like a 35-acre lot. It was quite nice. They had a set built on a pond. They, had, they wanted to make a real nature move, not one of those sweet movies where they this little baby lion and you help it grow up and then he leaves the country at the end of the movie. Now, this had to be how animals themselves had power positions in real life and how they would uh, treat each other as well. But to do that, you had to be really, really close. I mean, in hindsight, I mean, it was completely insane that that movie was made. And in hindsight, it was amazing that nobody actually got killed. So many things went wrong in that movie. One time, there was a flood, really horrible rain in the wintertime, and some dam broke nearby and flooded the whole canyon, wiped out the whole set, broke all the fences, all the animals escaped. So then we had to help find the animals. Like, you know, suddenly everybody's an animal trainer, which none of us were, of course. I mean, the one thing you know for sure is that that make yourself as tall as possible and be very loud. Then at least it stops them, it slows them down. There's no guarantee that they won't come, but at least it stops them for a moment. But then you're not brave enough to always do that because we had the assistant who saw that and they ran away as far as they could. And that's the last thing you should do because then they really run after you. So it was like absolutely insane situation. I mean, really, really insane. So that whole set that, that took a year off of two years, it had to be rebuilt it had to be new fence in. Then there was a canyon fire. I mean, like, when this is ever going to end? You know? But after the accident, then I, I just had such uh, horrific nightmares because... You're talking about your accident? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, one of those situations where Tippy had on a daughter was in a boat on the lake and the lions were chasing along the shore and there was a lot of screaming in the scene and everybody was looking at the actors basically and not where all the camera operators were. So one of them, the lioness came back and he turned around, I couldn't see her and then she walked around in a circle that we in the low and, they bit, and they're looking from the tops of the camera. So they bit me in my head and scalped me so I couldn't see anything. So it was all hanging in front of my eyes and it was bleeding like, like hell and and the one thing that I had to do, what I've learned, be as big as you can, as loud as you can. But if you're in a hole, you're not that big. And then my camera assistant, he immediately fainted and fell in the hole. I went to the bottom of the hole. So there was nothing for me to help me. And I was screaming and screaming and, and louder than I can. But that only drew more reliance. And then finally, Tippy Hadron in the boat saw what happened. And then she started yelling at the guards and the animal handlers. And then they came to me with all the fire extinguishers. I was in the hospital for a long time, and uh, the reason I came back is because I had too many nightmares. When you hear the, the teeth of a lion on your skull, you hear it in stereo. 
And that sound was so loud, and I could not get that sound out of my head. And you don't see it, you're all you're hanging in front of you, it's all bloody, you don't know how serious it is. And I thought I was going to die, I mean, simple as that. And it was bleeding so much, and they had to call a special doctor and a specialist in, in animal bites. And then I had to go to the hospital, and they could not give me any painkillers, because I would not be able to feel it, and therefore they would not know if there was infection in my head. So they couldn't operate for two days, and it was screaming like, because it was so painful and uh, they finally they got enough antibiotics in me that they thought it was safe to do surgery and an hour after the surgery I woke up from pure adrenaline because your body is fighting so hard to survive you're right awake and you feel the pain and they put me in a room at the far end of the hall because they knew they said that you're going to scream like hell because it was so painful and I was there for a long time but then when I went home I had such nightmares that I said I'm gonna have to stick with me if I don't go back and I went back for several weeks just to make sure that it would be safe to look at the future and then I stopped it basically but the movie was also near the end so by that time was uh, was just awful. Before jumping into specific projects, I was wondering if we could talk about transitioning from one's European background into Hollywood. You were interested in the scope of movies like, you know, Bridge on the River Kwai and, yeah, and yeah. wanting... What I like in those particular movies is that the story is very small and intimate. I mean, the scope is big and the scope contributes to the emotions that all those characters undergo. And that's what I like it. If it was just about the action, then I really wouldn't be that very interested. I mean, the same is 2001 or so. I'm not interested because of, of the amazing images. I am excited about what it, what it was able to achieve with those images. And that's a whole different thing. You can really make an effort to show a sample of all your fantastical achievements in your life and make the most amazing shots. But most amazing shots, the most beautiful shots, do not make a movie. Never do, never have, and never will. Every shot has a function to tell a story. For instance, if you photograph a movie and it, it has all those beautiful styles and perfectly photographed shots, you get bored so goddamn quickly because the story is never in the background. The story is always on the foreground, in a person's eyes, basically. That's the ultimate focus. As we look at each other, we don't look at your eye, I look at your eyes, you look at mine. Because that's how you get a connection. Well, it's the same when you watch a movie, too. Yes, it's great when I saw the movie on a big screen and large projection. What was overwhelming me is that despite the gigantic scope, that all you cared about is about the people, about the characters in the movie. And that, to me, is the biggest achievement of the movie. And if you see the third time, maybe, before then you look at other things, too, because you start to know the dialogue. <laughs> and that's why many of David Lean's films are done in that same way. Actually, he chooses location, but only location because he knows that those characters would fit the best in that location. And that is kind of strange, because it's not like he picked them for beauty. Yeah, he hardly ever does. It looks like it, but it has actually... They're not that special, they're just extremely meaningful. And that is like quite often you find a location that works. <laughs> That's how it's basically as simple as it is. And if you don't find the right, well, this works too, uh, that one works first. And ultimately you find the one that's available that you can get. But David Lean wanted the absolute perfect location. And so he waited till he could get in that location. He never changed his mind. So that is so fantastic that you can do that. It's like writing. So then you write, then the location becomes like a part of the writing in the movie. 
because that story is also written by the visuals. And that is a different thing than making beautiful images. The two are not related at all. That's why I got excited about that movie. Quite often, you have the right location and you show the right image. It creates an almost immediate feel for the viewer that is very clear. The location is such a big part of writing process. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? I'd want to know what bus it was. You think I'm going to tell you that? Yes. Ah, very good. There are rules, Jack, and I want you to get this right. No one goes off the bus. You try to take any passengers off the bus, I will detonate it. I want my money by 11 a.m. The very reason I think Speed is so successful is the structure of the movie where you're renewing action. If the movie had been two hours of nonstop bus, it would have been really challenging. Yeah. But going from an elevator shaft to the LA freeway to an airport, back on a train, you're allowing location to be story and, and you're renewing yeah, the I visuals. Mean, exactly. I think what it really does, it makes the city tell its own story as well. And quite often you don't get an opportunity to do that in a movie. When I read the original script and, and the studio didn't know what to do with it, I thought about it for a long time and then I got some idea how to do it. I told them it's really important that we see this bus driving on real roads where those buses actually would drive and where actually people sit in the bus that would take a bus every day. And that was so key. And so it took a, a really long time to cast the movie. All those people basically have one thing in common. They're all bus riders in real life. And you can see that. They've said so many times in their life in buses, they know what it feels and it does and bored. And when you have just extras who never sit in a bus but have their own car, they're so not at home there. And that they also had to look that, you know, because most people in buses are from poor neighborhood, it was really important that the people really sit in the bus are people that come from working class areas and they should look like that. They should feel like that. You cannot use just extras. What I think is interesting for any filmmaker is get an understanding, not just the final result, but the components that led up to it. And from my understanding, not only people should know that that was your first movie, which is even more impressive, but that, you know, with a $28 million budget, what people yeah. see as this large, amazing studio-backed movie yeah. was really a more low-budget approach that led to very that creative choices. It low-budget approach. And I also wanted on purpose keep the crew as small as possible because... When you travel nonstop all day long on a bus, you cannot have a big crew. It would slow you down so much. The drivers of the bus were actually sitting on top of the bus in the back and, and behind it because Sandra had to drive the bus and she had to learn how to drive a bus and really good at it. And so that everything feels normal, but that would be impossible to do in a regular film crew. So that was number one. Number two was, of course, that the safety things were studios go crazy about now and the stunts that are in the movie are all very doable they look much more dangerous than they are but the danger is always in your head 
What I found the scariest is actually standing on a fast-moving elevator going up and down because you cannot hold on to anything. You hold on on a beam on top of it, but you cannot. You don't want to hold on to any cable. First of all, you burn your hand right off. But the speed and the darkness is so amazing and so scary. And how do you make that come across? But other things, like for instance, the jumping from the Jaguar to the bus, Ken actually did not want to do that. He said, it's, it's, and I mean, you go at speed. So the, it's the ground that moves 50 miles, not the car. The car basically started, started standing still. So I tried to do all the stunts myself to make actors do the stunts because what I've also learned on a lot of other movies is that and as a cinematographer, there's such a very easy use of stunt doubles. And then immediately you don't see the face, no? You turn away and over the shoulder. And those shots actually don't need to be in a movie because if you don't see the actor, there's no reason to put a stunt double in because it doesn't emote anything. So what I've learned to do is I'd much rather have, like um, when, when, for instance, Keanu's hanging under the bus, that's him always under the bus. And he's hanging on very thin cables, but that makes it so scary because you see the actor actually doing the thing. Totally safe. But that, I think, is the reason that the film did so well, that it's almost always the actors that do the, the stunts. I want to be right there with them, because I already had done so many bigger stunt movies that I knew how to do it, and also I knew how to make them feel comfortable. And that's the whole thing, makes them feel safe. But once they do it, there's adrenaline on their face that you cannot create by directing, because you have to do it to see it. And that is such a big difference. And many action movies immediately stand up, immediately second unit team. And then you see this reaction and then see somebody else jump and somebody else land and then back to it. It is so boring. And therefore, you don't feel anything. There's no danger involved because the audience is no right away. It's not the actor. And that is so you should at all costs always try to use the actor. And if it's much better to simplify a stunt and see the actor than make it really complicated like when all those flip-flops on motorcycle, that's always green screen anyway these days, but you don't feel anything because you know it's completely phony, it's completely fake, it's all green screen. But if they would have a simpler stunt where you see the actual actor drive a bike and he starts sliding and the camera is on the same bicycle as the bike goes down and you see it's the actor but in a very safe way it is so much more effective you can't it doesn't come close to any big effect shot or stunt shot it also gets a feeling a little bit of a there's a rougher look to the movie it's like a lot of it's handheld anyway so it feels like the viewer is a little bit like an accidental incidental passenger on the bus who happened to be there and sees all those things always somebody who would curious point of view, moving a little closer, moving around them, you really feel that somebody is relating to the situation. Because if it's just they don't emote anything. And it is just technical perfect, but unless you relate it to a character in the movie, it is immediately ten times more effective than any created superstunt. I was rewatching the movie yesterday. I think it's so effective in the way you're always bringing the bus back to the location surrounding it. You know, whether it's through depth and through the windows or tying it back with conflict coming from the it environment. Is, exactly. It's so important that in that movie too that you always feel it's not always in the bus, also from the outside that you feel it's on a real street, a real LA street, the real cars going by, and the streets are not always that high flashy. It's always like downtown normally in movie. No, it's also regular service street, Olympic and vivid and, and that makes 
makes it look so real and, and traffic just continues. And yes, it is, of course, this case, but the actors don't know that. They're always like a little word. These things that we always were quite often stealing the shot. We weren't stealing them. I mean, in a way, see, that's where you, the artistry comes in by seeing the real people and make it as exciting as a big jump or fall with the stunt people you create a lot more suspense or action. And if you, for instance, like just Sandra driving the bus, she could never act if she wouldn't drive the bus. So we mounted it on a real bus, no rear screen, nothing was in a real bus. Cameras were outside the bus, two cameras on her. And she really has to act because there's cars coming at her. And that is to get those shots. We never towed those buses because it's too big to be towed anyways. But the driver always out of view, either mostly inside the top of the bus laying down, and you could have full control as well. But what she does was first. It's like, it's like a secondary control. And so he always had to hand on the wheel so that if she was making the turn too tight, he steered with her. And he immediately took over when there was a sense that she might lose control and start slowing down. I've filmed a lot of car scenes in my life. Those are still one of the best things I've ever, I've ever done and seen because it always feels real. And there always is a sense of danger. Even those, like the scenes with the bus, now like when with the jump of the bus, the studio didn't want that. They said, oh, it's expensive, it can never happen. I said, yeah, it can happen. I mean, it has to be a distance, but the bus can really charm. <laughs> So there was like endless discussions. I don't want to go into that. But so we had a bus and we had made it as light as possible, gave it a strong engine. And there was actually a stunt driver. There was the only situation where there was a stunt driver in for just a job, not anything before or after. The thing is what when you see a gap coming up for in real life, you know, and you don't because if you go up a ramp, you cannot see the other side. So the adrenaline goes sky high. So the driver, first time he freaked out a little bit as he got close, like, Oh my god, I'm not gonna make it and then he slowed down a little bit and the bus ended on a whole bunch of cameras parked down below and over which he was supposed to, to fly over. It was like a very costly mistake. And I didn't tell the studio. I said, oh, something went wrong. We have to redo it again. We'll try it again in two days. And But they never found out. Also, we never showed them the dailies either because they would have said, well, you guys out of your mind. And and so we did it again. And they had to make another bus. But we had 10 buses, so we could just use one. And then this, the guy did it again. And this time he was, he gave so much gas that he jumped too far way of all cameras almost hit that camera that was supposed to photograph and landing so the first time was too, was too short and the second time was too far but uh, the result is actually quite real because there's no no effect in there it's always interesting to see a real bus and not a miniature bus flying so the air has people in it and then the landing we did again with her driving and so see all, all she had to do is a small ramp and then drive up but the bounce back was pretty big. And even from that small, in, in like about a foot or so, boom! <laughs> and then they all freaked, which was great for the, all the shots because the camera was inside. They were all filmed the extras as well. And that's the only thing that we showed, of course, at the studio. We never showed the first. Everything else. Yeah. Sir, uh, we have a serious problem. What? This freeway is finished! What are you talking about? The aerial unit got it about three miles ahead. There's a section missing. But it's on the map. It's finished on the goddamn map. How big is the section? 50 feet, at least. There's a gap in the freeway. What? This is crazy. Florida. What? Florida. 
It's an interchange. There might be an incline. Floor it. Fine. Everybody, hold on to your seats or whatever you can. When we hit the gap, heads down. That's it? That's it? That's all we can do. Allow me to ask you a little bit about structuring a film that feels like a non-stop action, but you really have a couple ramping sequences for maximum impact. So I'll pull a quote uh, from yours. Quote, I knew the movie was going to be so full of action that if I didn't release the tension after each sequence, the audience was going to be exhausted. The moment you reach a climactic scene, you instantly release it so you can start build up to the next dramatic moment. Close quote. So again, we were talking about locations and, and understanding that the movie evolved. We have the first 26 minutes are in an elevator shaft. Act two is, you know, the bomb on the bus sequence. Mm -hmm. You go from a freeway mm -hmm. to an airport and act three is a train. So what's what's your plan? I'm curious when you're trying to structure a movie like this and evolve the action sequence so that you're taking those 28 millions and you're making them look like they're growing over time. Yeah, that is, that is a key thing. And what is actually really most important is that I know from experience, if you have non-stop action, you get less interested the second 10 minutes. And after a half hour, you kind of really becomes all the same. So it's really important to then go into the character's minds and, and into the other characters on the side that at the police station. So you can cut back and forth and really help the viewer to get ready for the next one. Really take a big breath out and slowly get ready. If you don't do that, it will not work. But if you do all the other scenes, they have to be filmed in a similar style. So you cannot film that like with less energy. But the energy is then much more focused on the character. So you have more close-ups, you have more intimate scenes. And that is extremely important that you don't change the style because it would bring the movie to stop immediately. So that kind of free-floating camera style we had, that had to continue even in the interior still sequences, even in the elevator, all that had to be similarly, like you had to felt like you just happened to be there. Oh God, there was a camera here and they just filmed it. And that's, you know, that's a little bit the feel of the whole movie. As a cinematographer, you have to be aware of those things. I think, oh, there's a quiet scene, now we also have to treat it a little quieter. No, because then the people in the audience, they lose their interest a little bit. So the tense quality you achieved in the other scenes, you have to keep it going in a different way. And you do that with some motion, but you also do it with the actor's help. And it's also that whole enthusiastic approach to filmmaking, that kind of European approach to filmmaking is uh, very inventive. And if changes happen, Use them for a good purpose. Don't cut it out because you're not a script. But if it's good, make them work for you. Improvising is really good in, in movies like that. And of course, the only thing you cannot improvise in the, in the safety for actors. Yeah, I want to come back to one of the other thing in regards to filming a movie like that is that the key crew is really important to a film like this. So for instance, that the DP, the sound engineer, they all know what I'm trying to do and they all tell me how they think they can help and how they can improve it. It is so much a teamwork movie. And the better the team is, the better they know each other, respect each other, the better the movie is. And you feel that on the movie. I have to say also, we did it for a relatively low budget, but I was able, because I'd worked with big effects, I tell them you have to do this for me, the special effects. And they did it for minimal fees because they said it was a fun project. They all loved the project. When it was filmed, they all loved it. But you cannot always do that in Hollywood because those people have to make money too. But once in a while, when they see it's something really great and really fun, 
And so it wasn't too hard to get really top people in the crew department to want to work on it. That is, I think, is like the most important thing is that a film is always teamwork. You know, like I said earlier, it's not an author. It is really like a f perfect fusion of all those different professions with all their own creative input that makes this a movie like this work. As I hear you talk about your process, what I think is also very interesting and that not only people know that you started out as a cinematographer, but I think the importance of operating your own camera. So important. Very important. And I kept doing that even after that. So because what I learned in, in movies in, in Europe is that, especially when you're a first-time director, so where you've quite often your friends, is that as an operator and especially hands up, because I almost done that on all the movies, is that you get so close to the actors. I heard a story about an actress who said, what is the most important thing for a cinematographer for you? And she's answered is that, can he register the chemistry between the actors? On a camera handles, I was always this close with actors and the other actor. If I thought the performance was not good, I told the director, we have to do it again. I was out of focus. So I made up a, a, a fake story too. And then they did it again, it was much better. And then the director would see it and say, oh, this is so much better. But I was talking and whispering to them on the set while filming. I learned to do that really quiet and to the actress too. Said, I, I was going to walk around and just as he said this, I'm going to go around to you right in your face and be ready. Don't get scared by when I do that. Because you don't, you don't want to tell everything. It's also important that uh, the actors trust you and that they are only interested in how good you are on the screen and that you look good on the screen. So you have to establish that right in the beginning. You have to get friends, become friends. In the rehearsals, you always walk around them, what I think I'm going to do with the camera later on. And they will, you become part of the acting team a little bit for them. It's like you're not an actor moving around, you know, having set a camera. But then you start actually to see what it really means because you can see in the eyes, you can see the actor respond to the person right next to me on the outside frame and, and vice versa too. And what I noticed later in, in a lot of movies is that, you know, when you have two shots and close-up, the other actor quite often is already in the trailer getting ready for makeup. So the chemistry that you want to film is already gone because the script girl says the lines or the director says the line, and there's no emotion in the closer. It's not the actor's fault. It's just impossible when you have nobody there to act to. So I always ask him, you have to be there. You know, if you have to have a break for you, I'd rather have a break afterwards. But for this close, yeah, I want the, always the actors to be there off camera so that they can really respond and you can register that chemistry. You can register that intention between the two. Of course, there's adrenaline in their faces as well. That is an emotional adrenaline, but it's, it's there. And that's what you want to see. And I've learned that by operating the camera, it's the only way you can see it. The key thing I want young cinematographers to, to be aware of is that they have to know that you're there. They have to get used to you being there. When they rehearse, stop doing what you have to do. Go on the set and walk around them and be that person who you're going to be as if you belong, if you're part of the scene. Because you don't do it, then they get distracted so quickly. And then, oh, no, the assistant. And then there's a, a reaction of like, of almost like freaking out of send the cameras right on the face. Well, that was the whole point to get that. <laughs> but if you get that, you know, and that's so important to get an immediate, really great relationship between the operator, which I think every cinematographer should operate himself or herself and the actors. It is key to me. It's really, really, really key. And it makes the actors so relaxed. 
that you know it's like oh, now there is part of the scene and he knows what we want and he or she will do the utmost to get the right thing for us you know i always try to get film students on the side because there's nothing more important than that that's the only way they can learn and also they have to work i don't want them to just visit that's you learn nothing become a camera assistant operate a camera even if you've never done it i mean like we didn't have eight operators everybody else became an operator <laughs> and they, everybody loved it are you kidding me even the we're makeup man is saying, oh God, it's, yeah, come here, just go a little this way. They loved it. They loved it. And when they, then they see their shot in a the movie, they even, they're even more happy. Because then they suddenly feel like they're involved in the whole creative process. It's so great to do that. And all film students have to be able to find a job on the set. And studios should make that a rule that they take on several in different apartments. But let them work and pay them some money on top, of course. But it is so great. I mean, one of the first things I did when I was young, I went to see Freddie Young, was like this amazing cinematographer. Was my, I was a big fan. I was 21. And they were doing the Battle of Britain in England. I asked if I could come over to the set. And finally, they let me come. I flew over there and I went somewhere I feel in, in outside London. It's the very first scene I saw. There was like a row of 14 arc lights. I don't know, gigantic old arc lights. And it was just two people walking and the airplanes with spark. And so Freddie Young with a little smoke handle walking in front of us, the actors, fully involved in track. That was so great. I loved him because his work I thought was always so impressive in those older movies. And he was an amazing man. It was like he was so good. And he could never sit on a chair. He was all changing this year. It was so great. And see, that's what I wanted to do. Absolutely perfect. Trying to pinpoint why cinematography is emotional and the choice of lenses. There's a million ways you could cover things, and I yeah, think it yeah, applies yeah. to the scene. Yeah. My favorite is I had to be close to. So no long lenses on regular widescreen. It was like a 35 or 40, sometimes a 50. Because otherwise the moves you have to make become too big. The longer the lenses, you can't have to go around. You have to walk around for a mile to get to the other side. And then suddenly you don't take part anymore. Then it becomes like a whole big move. And then that's when people move dolly tracks around. But that's not the same thing. See, if you're here and I only have to do two steps, I'm on the other side. And you have to look for the best lenses that don't have any distortion, that are really free from the most ugly side effects of lens. And now the lenses are getting so much good. We had lenses set out at Panavision because I work, uh, I mean, I help design lenses at Panaflex as well, wow. at Panavision. Those really super anamorphic lenses and they were fantastic. They're heavy, but they were zero distortion. And it was so great. You could get really close. I also designed this little box I can put on the lens that was part of the camera. And it has a light source in it that's filtered, and it has a little dimmer on the side. So I could, well, getting close, I could bring it up or down at the same time. Because there's nothing worse if you get close and you have a shadow on a person's face, or you don't see the eyes. It's so important. There has to be a reflection in the eyes of the actor. If it's a single point, it's best. But if it's not reflection, the eyes are dead. A lot of the things I've I learned in my life, I learned from actually Rembrandt. I've read almost all his books. And in the beginning, people always said, like all the critics said, how great his lighting is and things like that. It looked also natural. And then the more I studied his work, I started to realize, wait a second, there's no way light can come from there and have that shadow or have no shadow. There should be a shadow. It's not there. So he created light sources that didn't really exist. For him, the only thing was important, and he said it also in his writing, 
Instead, he wanted to see the face and the sin away. And he would paint the light no matter where the lights were. So he created a lot of artificial, like he had a floating light source in his mind, of course. Eh? Like it's here and then actually oh, it might be better now here. Even though there was only one candle there, it moved everywhere to get the right effect. And that is so fantastic. So after he became a professional painting, he started to experiment with light in a way like this. So he made a self-portrait. First from the back, kind of from over your shoulder. And all you see is one little piece of the eye. And then the next one is a little the chin. So he took 15 paintings, and each time you see the light change. And that is, any cinematographer should learn that, because everything creates a different emotion. And suspense or drama is fantastic. And there you can see that it all looks natural, but it is not natural at all, of course, because the there's no light source, no window there. But he makes it look like, but the discovery of light, the influence of light, that it should be a must-have lecture for all cinematographers. It's in those first 15 paintings. And if you, for instance, go look at the Nightwatch, maybe you've seen it once in Amsterdam. It's a huge painting, no? And it's like an inner hall interior in the evening. So you think there's candles there. It's like a moody, very moody painting. So you think that, well, there's a candelabra maybe. So the light clearly comes from one direction. I mean, some of the main view. But if you look close on the faces, the light comes from the other side. It comes from below. But it all looks real. Together it looks real. Also... Any light source makes a shadow, no? So he doesn't paint shadows. And the, the night was, so there's two shadows visible in the foreground of the two lead characters, only to show the, the viewer, I know how to paint shadows. Don't think I don't know how to do it. So they're here, but they're nowhere else. So even all the, the guns and no shadows, nothing makes a shadow. They have a side light or a backlight, but there's no shadow on anybody. And in the days, people were really critical of him. That's not natural. That's like the light. You have, there were all those rules how you have to paint, and the light has to be this. And, and he stopped doing that almost from the get-go. After he started to paint us, it was fantastic. Personally, whenever I go to Amsterdam, the Rijksmuseum, it's, it's a regular stop if I can yeah. multiple times because it's incredible. Allow me to wrap up the little section on, on speed because we just talked about intimacy and emotion and close-ups mm. and conversations. And on the other end, I'm, I'm very curious to ask you, when you're shooting a sequence like the final one where the train jumps into Hollywood Boulevard, you're obviously covering a scene like that with multiple angles probably for safety reasons. You if never know where the train will end. You never know where it's going to end. Sometimes it's a little longer lenses for safety reasons yeah. if there's someone operating yeah. it. So when you're working on a limited budget with a lot of cameras, but you still have a limited amount of cameras, how do you try and choose your angles in the most emotional way? Yeah, I hate to put the cameras far away because I think the moment you put them far away, there's no real connection to the object. But I like to put the cameras close. I like to see things come over towards you. And yes, cameras do get destroyed. So for those shots, I always buy cameras, are really cheap cameras for, you know, those old Bell and Howells, and the lens might get destroyed, but the film is never destroyed. And those shots, you can't pay for them. It's like, they're so amazing. Again, because that has to do with, with the, of the whole style of the film, that you're always relatively close to the actors with that. So if you then, for the stunts, would do the opposite, you kind of break that mode. I mean, I always I'd like to be the camera right in front as it comes, but of course, then that would cost, that would be too expensive. And Panavision, they got a little pissed off because I think we destroyed nine cameras or so. But I'm really good friends and I work with them many times. But I said, listen, I need a set of really good lenses, really good for all the mates that are close by. But I also need a set of lenses you nobody wants. 
And because you had a feeling they were yeah, not coming yeah, back. There, were, there was a feeling that, that might, something might happen to them. And I said, what are you going to do? So, oh, I don't know. I just don't want to really ruin, and, and I don't want any really great lens to break. You never tell them exactly everything what you're going to do, of course. And I also like to operate the cameras as much as possible. You put a camera in the close by track and that is totally protected. You have so many cameras visible in speed that are built onto other cars right in the middle of action. Nobody's ever told me that they've seen a camera right in the middle because they're so distracted by the other thing that's happening that they cannot believe that on the bus in the front there's a big camera. Well, it makes a turn and nobody ever, and even the studio never seen it, I swear to God. And there's multiple times that it happens. So I'm aware that you can or camouflage them in a way that you paint a little bit that you really don't know exactly what it is. The best angle is always the most dangerous angle. And that is, it's, it's, it is, it is a truth, you know, there's like, uh, I collect photography and there's uh, photographers who, especially war photographers and the best pictures are the ones where a photographer happens to photograph something that really happens right in front of him, close enough, not a long lens. Now, also being as close to an actor as you can without getting into somebody else's camera. But I'm really good at camouflaging cameras that you cannot see them, even though you look right at them. They see people twisting in knots where they have an A camera and they're gonna, you know, A camera's gonna be where it is. And then B camera, we don't really care about you guys. No, so see, that is the most important camera. Should you just, I see people literally sacrificing a position for a B or C camera, thinking they're gonna see it. And I would imagine, pick your angles, and if by any chance you catch the crew on the other end of the street, you'll cut around it. You, you cut around it, and it's, you can you can super something over it that diffuses the image, that section. You should always go for it. All the best things always work that way. Stunts, a real stunts, like in real life, real accidents don't happen as they were planned or scheduled. And if you're too far away with your cameras, it's completely like a, a toy cars. And that's, I hate to see in speed any car referred to as a toy car because I want them to feel real and dangerous and, and close by and almost hitting you. That's how it is driving in LA also. There has to be a reality factor that is number one on the list of style issues in how to approach a movie like that, you know. Don't be afraid. It's like... <laughs> and. I had some accidents in my life with cameras and, and I'm probably a bad example because I've been hit by things before, but still I could not give it up. I would never give it up. It's not that you want to do everything for the shot. It is not the shot. It is it's the moment of directness that is so rare that you can achieve that. And you should always go for that. I wanted to ask you about Twister. I was born in 92 and I just remember this wave of disaster movies from the 90s. You know, Universal was doing obviously Twister and then Daylight, which was shot in Rome and, mm. and all of those. And I was wondering, just on a personal level for you, getting off the high of speed in 94, which was a really great success, yeah. and going from a $28 million movie to a $92 million movie, on a creative level, did it feel like it was opening new doors? Was there... No, I almost immediately felt that it would start would limit me dramatically because there are so many real effects in the movie. Yeah? Not, I mean, on-camera effects, like the following tractors, that's all real. The ice cubes over the top of the camera, and that, and that all has to happen at the same time. What I was worried the most for is the time it takes to get all those trucks lined up and then all get to the same speed and then suddenly the, the ice machine doesn't work or the wind machines on the car don't work or that I would lose so much time in 
organizing the movie and I was afraid that I could, I wanted to get a similar approach to being close by, to be in it. I mean, like Twister, you want to be feeling inside that world, really close by. If I would have filmed it from a safe distance, it would have no effect. I mean, the movie was really awful for the actors because there was a lot of real debris in the air. I mean, that was made by the art department and the effects department. And there was lightweight, but still, if it blows by those huge propeller machines and, and we had uh, several jet engines that blow the debris at you, the speed of it really... Anything, even a little mess box hurt on your face. You can't see anything. You get dust in your eye. But all that is, of course, real. The actors really didn't have to act. I mean, because they, they had no other choice to respond in a realistic way to what is happening to them. So I needed also, I needed actors that really were not like, you know, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that, it hurts, or just pain. So I really I needed a little bit like cowboys, like really who are tough a little bit. If you have that, you're, you're fine. But if not, it's like, I mean, Helen was sometimes injured during the movie when they were going through a field of cornfield. They go with a car through it, and then she's standing on the board trying to find out where Yaka is. And suddenly she lets go of the door. Of course, the door. And I tell her, Helen, never let the door go. It's really important. Put your whole body in between it. So then nothing will happen because it's corn cells. They are not made out of steel. But she let it go. And then the door swung close and hit her in the head as she got back in. She was furious, but... And then later, and she blamed me, of course, but then later she said, I'm sorry, it's my own fault. I really should have listened to you. Those things, unfortunately, do happen. I mean, and we had stunned people there. I mean, like safety said, wires. He could never fall out of the car. He was all automatically being pulled back in the car. Not driving that fast, but if the things are really close to you, it looks fast. If it goes 25 miles an hour through cornfield, it looks like it's 50, easy. But for the rest, we had uh, amazing enough no incidents. I mean, we had some people welds on the head because of those ice machines that break up the big ice cubes into smaller hail. They were supposed to be all small, but once in a while a big machine failed and got a big bump on your head. And that has happened several times, unfortunately. But the actor, I mean, like, he would not stop. No packs then is so insane. I said, listen, I, I love it. I, I love it. <laughs> it feels real. So yeah, that's fucking real. <laughs> There's nothing fake about that, you know, acting on, on, the, on this truck, standing up when he tried to get the machine on. But I, I felt that too. It's like, then we would only work if you're inside it. But the cost of the movie was basically determined by... That was one of the first CGI movies there in, re- in regards to that. We had always changed the sky. Of course, we filmed real skies too. In regards to sky replacement. Yeah. That had never been done before. Normally, you could only do it on static character. No, no, no. It will all be handheld. So they had to invent tracking software that didn't exist not yet before that movie. That was really costly to help to design the software. So there, there was a lot of new things invented for that movie, which was quite, quite amazing, actually. But still, I felt like if you would ask me what is better, CGI, well, nothing, nothing is better than real life. Nothing ever. In, in the movie, it's best to show there's one time there's a house that rolls around it. That was a real house. Then later, you see the farm started to break up. They did a fantastic job. I'm, I mean, really great. But the difference is night and day. The thing is, when you make a CGI, everything is thought out artificially. When it's for real, things move and this thing. And you cannot even come up with the movement motions of a house that rolls, a real house that rolls in CGI. Now so much of CGI is kind of loses its magic a little bit. And they're getting better and better, but it always feels artificial to me. And I immediately see it anyway.
for actors too, they have to act against a green screen. There's nothing worse for an actor. There's you no know, depth anymore. And the performances, that's why so many performances in, in, in those big CGI movies are completely very generic almost, you know? The only other thing I want to ask you about Twister was, again, we talked about genre conventions and, and audience expectations. And I, I think if this was a film studies class, you would probably classify it as, as a monster movie like Jaws, you know, where we're not dealing with a character like Dennis Hopper, who's no, human no, with, with no, intentions. No, but no. I was curious, what did you learn from Speed that you brought up on Twister? What were we talking about a moment ago in regards to structuring a movie? And we know that, you know, the expectation is going to go that a, a tornado is going to come and a tornado is going to yeah, go. Exactly, yeah. Because that you can only do a limited amount of time, especially because we were worried how it would look, you know, because it, we did some tests and that was it. And, and then they had to do it. So I had to make sure that as in between time that sets up a different type of tension, you know, between the teams and, and between the characters and personal issues they had to deal with. If I wouldn't have done that and it would be just only storm chasing, it would be really boring. And believe me, I have seen so many of those real life action chases and it's like after 20 minutes, they all look the same. But that you also can see in Bridge on the River Kwai. The key scenes are quite often the most emotional, the most the smaller scenes. And they they move the movie forward, not so much the action. The action you're just waiting for it to happen and say, oh wow, that's very powerful. But it is it's not really as important as seeing the reactions on the faces of the characters responding to it. Unfortunately, in those days, you couldn't see the actor and the stunts in the same shot because there were too many things that could go wrong. But I bet you if that would have been possible, David Lean would have done that in a second because he knew so well the involvement of the character in the film with the event that they expect. Because if that person is not aware of it, what it really feels like, looks like, he wouldn't know how to emote to that. What is your reaction going to be when the train falls down and unless you see it? So you have to become really good at timing as a director. It's like, like the shots where you start on an act and you turn around and, and then the stunt happened all in one shot. And that is what I like. So that's when you really see there's no fake, this really happened. It takes a real good time to figure out how to do that and, and to learn it. And then and experience, of course, has helped me a lot too. What, for instance, happened in, in Lethal Weapon that I did is like, they were so set up in the way they were filming this, the first movie. And I tried everything to make it different. And the studio was like, no, 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 it has to be like this. That's why I never did another one. Although that one was the, the more successful one, I still didn't like it. I did my best to make it a little bit more personal, a little bit more involved, a director. I mean, the camera always closer, but no. I mean, like Die Hard was actually also really good in that regard, where John McTiernan totally gave me full freedom. And I had always on the shoulder and that's how you can create tension you know because a shot like if it's like Bruce Willis is running through on the roof to see if the guy's there and you follow him and you turn around and with him on the phone see the guy that is a much bigger shot than you cut to the guy yeah. because that's the real trick is actually to see the one shot <laughs> yeah but about I heard now that you brought it up another element of, of your work which I've done so well is establishing geography yeah Oh, yeah. By having a really clear establishing all the time, and people, other people in the background, so you know there's a relationship with the rest of the world. But if you start separating things, the emotional contact or the connection between the event that happens and the character completely disappears. Again, David Lean is like a perfect example. You know always exactly where everybody is. 
Kubrick, he's also really good at establishing so clearly where everybody is. I'm so happy you brought it up because that was always a big thing. Is, is a movie like Die Hard difficult then in regards to trying to set an entire story in one building where what's great about that is that some floors are in construction, some are yeah, not, yeah. you have a roof, you have it's a basement. It's really confusing. It's really, I, I try to make it so clear each time where we are. Just did a, a new grading for, for Diet a couple of months ago, an HCR version of it. And you always kind of know what floor you're on. Because I know that in a big building, like 43 stories, you get lost so quickly. You know, you get lost going out of the elevator. What floor are you on? I don't know. And I really wanted to put really names on bigger. If there was no the number, I really made sure there was a number there. So people would, simple things quite often help an audience really, really well. And then it is so important to know where everybody is and how far away from the roof are we now? Are we below the roof? Only one story. It is so important in telling the story because it becomes more meaningful if they know the same thing as the actors know. Yeah, visual clarity yeah, then translates is, uh, yeah, to yeah, emotional yeah, clarity. Yeah, absolutely. I thought I told all of you I want radio silence until further... Oh, I'm very sorry, Hans. I didn't get that message. Maybe you should have put it on the bulletin board. This is very kind of you. I assume you are our mysterious party crash. You are most troublesome. For a security guard? Sorry, Hans. Wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change? Who are you, then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench, the pain in the ass. Mr. Mystery Guest, you know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Jan, we've been talking a lot about your projects and my very last question to you. I'm, I'm curious to ask you about your relationship with the young creativity. I'm going to offer you a quote by a fellow director, Guillermo del Toro, and he says, quote, 70% of your own art will be unexplained, but you need to hold on and know the other 30% so you can keep the conversation going with yourself. I very much agree with that statement. I think if you look just for a job, you can definitely find it in the film industry if, you know, if you're technically capable of pushing all the right buttons. But creatively, it's not very satisfying. To me, I feel like I have to trust what I'm doing. I really wanted to make efforts in dealing with slides in a way that could help to tell the story. And those things are so great to do. But you never will find a director to ask you to do that. You know, light is the key thing to everything. It's like with light, you can make something so scary and also boring, and you can make everything else in between, you know. But the most intriguing thing of light is the absence of light, you know, how little you can get away with, and sometimes how important and bright that one spot has to be to make it work. And there's no end to, to playing with light. I, I just love it. I always have loved it, and it's one of my things. And you can see that there's a cohesion between all facets of filmmaking in European movies. You know that uh, the photographer and the director are clearly hand in hand. They really understood what the, what the other wants and how they can how they can help each other. The same with, with set design, the same with the actors. They all understood clearly what was what the stakes are. In a big project, you know, people are hired quite often because of their knowledge, because of their experience, the actors because they're star names to sell, and all the other people mostly because because of 
experience with big movies, but not necessarily because they can get along very well. And I think that even in a big movie, you have to ultimately come to a conclusion very early on that you can form a small team with all the key people, and there's five or six or seven, and that's the people that are going to make the movie. No matter that there's 300 other people around you, which I had crews like that, it is those five people or six people on the set that ultimately are going to make the movie and decide about all the emotional qualities of a movie, all the, the plot points, all the drama, the suspense, the action. It doesn't matter what type of movie it is. The system works the same for almost every type of movie. It has to be a cohesiveness between those key people and a complete trust in each other and an understanding of each other's work and respect for each other's work. So if a director comes in and tells you, I want this, this, and this, and that, then that's already a bad starting point. Because it means that all what the other people all have to say is not important at this point. A good director would also never do that. Okay, this is what my thoughts are, and I want to hear all about your thoughts. It's like, how can we achieve this project, and how can we make the very best movie together? Because the most important thing of a movie is teamwork. There's no other way around it. And the movies that are the best are quite often those where the teamwork was very clearly visible, and where you clearly have respect for all the facets of filmmaking. So yeah, photography is as important as, as anything else too. Because photography sets the tone for every scene. So what, when I came here a long time ago, there was a, a way of, of operating in the film business which was basically all based on knowledge. So if we have a scene that's suspenseful, take this and this location, then the solution is that automatically, you do this, you do that, and that's exactly how they did it. Of course, the problem is when you do that with each movie, all those movies starting to look very generic. And it doesn't matter if it's a small movie or a really big movie. And you start to see comparisons and quality sameness that increased hand over hand over hand. Then there's actually not even a reason to become a filmmaker or want to make film because then you're just a technician. So it's like putting a car together. All the parts are already set and all you put is tighten the screws or so or welding. Yeah, maybe some people are like that. I personally, I never was interested in that because then you can hire anybody. I feel like you have to hire your team because of the input and not because of the technical know-how. That is completely irrelevant. Jan, on behalf of everyone listening, thank you so much for the movies you worked on, for sharing your time in this conversation. It means so, so much. So thank you again. I'm glad you did, Brenda. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Jan for welcoming me into his home to record this conversation. And to Eric Boss, who does an amazing job final mixing all of these episodes. If you enjoy your program, I ask you to please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.